You are listening to the Tom Eliff Podcast. Tom Eliff pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Eliff. Of Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. In just a few moments, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to read a passage of Scripture beginning with verse 1, and we're really going to read down through verse 14, a rather lengthy passage of Scripture. It is the text for the message both this morning and this evening. Now, there's just one message, and I'm not going to preach all day long, but I want to speak this morning and this evening on this subject, the descriptions of the deceived. The descriptions of the deceived. And let me just say to you that um, this is a very important day, I believe, in our city. I want to encourage you to do just exactly what you heard announced in the early portion of this worship service. And since some of you may not have been here then, let me remind you that this is Life Chain Sunday. I know that the heart of this church is set against the murder of abortion. And uh, it is killing, it is murder in the uh, rankest sort. And much has been said from this pulpit, much has been taught in your classrooms about the sanctity of life. And we have an opportunity as a church family to join with thousands of other people in our city today in a peaceful demonstration for life. This will not be a, an encouragement to you to break any laws. As a matter of fact, uh, I can assure you of that. But it is an encouragement to you to make a visible expression of the fact that you are pro life and you are anti-killing or another word for that is abortion and so i want to encourage you to join with thousands of others there will be literally miles upon miles of believers in this city and you see the instructions there and you know what to pick up when we are dismissed from the worship service here this morning and you're on your way to sunday school before you go to sunday school you just pick up that information and those signs if you will please what you heard a few moments ago by means of personal testimony is an illustration of the effect of the gospel. That is that when Christ Jesus enters a person's heart, he changes that person's life. He brings forgiveness of sin, cleansing of sin, sets that individual on a personal pilgrimage, an adventure in which you begin to understand all that is involved in knowing Christ as Savior, claiming Him as Lord of your life, and all that is involved in the eternal and the abundant life which He gives us as a free gift. That is the result of the gospel. Now, the message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, God's Son, after living an absolute, perfect, and sinless life on this earth, paid on the cross the wages of sin, which is death. He died as a substitute for you and for me. When he died on the cross, he was dying as a payment for our sin. The Bible says Christ also once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit or by the Spirit. God commended His love toward us, Paul says in Romans 5, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ 
died for us. And then again, the Apostle Paul tells us that he became sin for us. He who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And so the gospel message is that Jesus came to this earth, died on the cross for sinners, rose from the grave, and is alive today. And that he will enter the heart and life of every person who will receive him by faith, repenting of sin, trusting in Jesus. Now, salvation comes by the grace of God through faith, and it is by the grace of God through faith in Christ alone. Nothing added to it. The effect of the gospel, you heard the testimony of changed lives. The message of the gospel, I have just given it to you in brief summary or outline. There are three dangers to the message of the gospel. Now, let me briefly outline them for you. Three dangers to the message of the gospel. The first danger is the danger of legalism. That is a good word, legalism. Now, legalism says that the way a person comes to God is by keeping the works of the law. Looking back into the Old Testament, we see that the laws of God were indeed perfect laws. But of course, we must understand that sinful man not only cannot because of his sin nature, but also because of his sin nature, he will not keep those laws. All of those laws are perfect. But there is within us this rebellion against the laws of God. Why then the law? Well, the law was to show us our crookedness, to show us God's perfect standard. It is, as we have seen, a picture of the righteousness of God against which we measure our own crookedness. But legalism says, if you will just do enough right things, you can go to heaven. Now, it adds a lot of church things to that. Uh, for instance, if you will just be baptized, or if you will just participate in communion, or any one of, in some churches, as high as seven other sacraments, if you will just do enough good things, well, then you're going to go to heaven. Salvation is by works. Now, to deal with the issue of legalism, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans, which says that under no circumstances will a man be saved by keeping the law. We are saved by grace through faith. The Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, there in Romans 1.16, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, the book of Romans is written to contradict legalism. All right, now let's take the pendulum and move it clear over to the other extreme, and here's another danger of the simple message of the gospel, and that is what we have sometimes called antinomianism. Now, the word nomos is the Greek word for law, and it means to be against the laws of God. It just says, look, your behavior makes no difference at all. You can live like the devil as long as you believe there's a God, as long as you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Don't worry about your behavior. You can live the most sordid, sinful kind of lifestyle as long as you just basically believe that there is a God, that Jesus is His Son. That is called antinomianism. Now, to contradict that thought we have in the Bible, 
not the book of Romans, but the book of James. It was written by James under the authority, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. James is a half-brother of Jesus. James, as a matter of fact, was the senior pastor there in the church of Jerusalem. And the book of James says our behavior is important. God does care how we act. And, of course, he tells us that it is by our works that our faith is brought to fruition or our faith is made perfect or complete. And Jesus, of course, said this. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, we enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things I say unto you? He said in Luke 6, verse 46. So there is legalism, you're saved by what you do. Antinomianism, what you do doesn't matter. And then there is a third threat or danger to the simple message of the gospel. And it is that danger addressed in this book, which we are studying uh, at this time in our church life, and that is the book of Galatians. And the danger is Galatianism. What is Galatianism? Galatianism is the idea that you are saved by the grace of God, but the way you hang on to your salvation is by doing good works. You come to God, you repent of your sins, you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, but then if you don't live right, you're going to die and go to hell. But if you do the good works that a believer in Christ ought to do, then you will end up in heaven. That is Galatianism. And it is so named because the Galatians were Gentiles. They knew very little about the Jewish faith. And uh, the Apostle Paul came with the message of the gospel. They received Christ. They repented of their sins. Trusting in him, they began to experience this new life. And then upon the scene, there appeared these people that we call the Judaizers. And the Judaizers said, look, it's great that you receive Christ. It's important that you receive Christ. But look at all the Jewish law. So much so that in the early part of the book of Galatians, we find that Peter, when he was with the Galatian Christians in the beginning, he ate with them. He ate just like the Gentiles. But when the Judaizers showed up, he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He began to say, well, it's very important that we keep these works of the law. And so that is Galatianism. Now listen, Galatianism in substance is no different than legalism in substance because it still means that ultimately you're going to heaven depends upon your works. All right? And so to confute that, to contradict that, the Apostle Paul has written the churches of Galatia. And so with your Bible in hand, I want you to stand with me. We'll read a passage of Scripture here found in Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministers to you the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. 
For the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations be blessed. So then, they which are of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that does them shall live in them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit will teach us this morning. Show us the descriptions of deception. How easily it is for those of us who are believers in Christ to become deceived and to move from foolishness to the point that we actually become a false prophet. We preach a false gospel. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would deliver us from those things. I pray that your word to these Christians in Galatia would also be your word to us this morning. Use me as a preacher, Heavenly Father, to speak to the hearts of people. Speak in power by your Holy Spirit. Bring people this morning to receive Christ simply by repenting of sin and trusting in Him as Savior. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As you're seated, keep your Bible open to Galatians chapter 3. And I want to share with you a personal testimony. This is a little painful for me to do. But I believe as I share with you my testimony about a portion of my pilgrimage as a believer in Christ that some of you who are here this morning will be able to identify with that portion of my testimony. I came to know the Lord Jesus as a young man. My father was a preacher. I remember the revival service. It was an outdoor revival. And I remember going home one evening and on my knees with my mother and daddy on either side of me, I repented of my sin and trusted in Christ as my Savior. Looking back on that, I can remember a great many things about that evening and about those revival services. I don't remember exactly what I said. I do remember a little bit about how I felt, but all of that is beside the point. The point is that at a specific moment, I repented of my sin, I received Christ, Christ entered into my life, and my life has been a wonderful adventure with the Lord Jesus ever since. It's not always been easy. It has not always been painless, but there has always been that sense of the presence of God. As I began to come to the latter years of my college life, I began to seek something more. Now, we have dozens upon dozens of university students who are in our Sunday morning and evening and Wednesday night services. And so let me just say to you, that some of the most um, important growth of my spiritual life took place while I was in university. And I began to hunger for more. Christianity had to be more to me than what I was experiencing. Now, I was pastoring a little church during those days down the south-central part of Arkansas. And traveling back and forth to that church, uh, I would often think that there's got to be more than Christ to Christianity than just this. After I graduated from the university and Jeannie and I were married and then we went on to the seminary, 
I begin to understand what many times we refer to as the Spirit-filled life. Now, I didn't understand everything about it, but I begin to realize that when I received Christ as my Savior, the Holy Spirit came to dwell within me and that the only way I was going to have victory in my life, especially in certain areas of besetting sin, was to surrender absolutely to the working of the Holy Spirit. During those days on the seminary campus, God swept through that campus and literally across our nation in a spirit of revival. The atmosphere was absolutely fantastic in terms of, uh, by comparison to, to the way things had been. Believers in Christ would openly share their testimony. Many of you remember, if you were uh, spiritually in tune in those days, the Jesus movement of the late 60s and the early 70s, and this revival was a part of what we call the Jesus movement. Like many revivals, it died in the hands of excess. And so there came a time in the early 70s when I began saying, well, there still must be more. About that time, uh, a, a couple with whom Jeannie and I had been acquainted for many years encouraged us to attend a conference. And, and I call those, those the, the years of conferences, and I, I still attend conferences and seminars and institutes several times a year, but in those years, I found great comfort in these conferences. Now, I remember the first one that we attended. We were just overawed with what we heard. And <clears throat> as uh, the speakers would share, they would tell about certain things they had learned in terms of devotional life, uh, spiritual life, uh, spiritual application. And <clears throat> it's almost as if I, I began to just pick and choose certain things about the Christian life and certain tools, and I began to employ them in my life. And so I moved from the simplicity of the gospel to the importance of surrendering to Christ to a dissatisfaction with even that kind of life to the point that I thought, well, there must be some better way, and I heard that better way portrayed for me, I thought, in these conferences and these seminars. And so coming through that year or so of these seminars and conferences, and as I said, I still attend them, many different kinds during a year, but those particular years I was particularly impressionable, I arrived at a set of personal rules. And I felt that if I adhered to these rules, that would mean that I would be deeply spiritual. I learned in one about devotional life. I learned another one about finances. I learned another one about uh, how to overcome in certain areas of besetting sin. I learned in others about other aspects of the Christian life. And I, I gathered together just a, I don't know that I ever wrote it down, but I just began to develop a, a mental picture of what a really dedicated Christian man or woman was, and I wanted to live like that. Now, ironically, slowly and subtly, that picture became like a law to me. In other words, if I, during the course of a day or a week, if I did all those things that I knew a good Christian was supposed to do, 
I felt very proud before God. Look, Lord, I've done all the things that are right. If I didn't do them, I felt absolutely devastated. It would be terrible. Somebody would say, how are you? Oh, you know, I'm in the spiritual pits. I just feel terrible about, you know, I'm just failing. I, you know, I didn't spend X number of minutes. I didn't fill out this. I have not gotten this done. I did not relate to my wife or my children in this fashion. I noticed something else about me. I wouldn't have ever admitted to anybody. But not only did those principles become something of a barometer in my heart of my own spiritual condition, but they became a manner by which I began to judge other people in terms of their walk with God. And I actually moved, when I came through that little period in my life, I entered into a very long period in which I, I became critical of other people who did, not, who did not live by my standards. If they didn't spend my time in the Scripture, if they didn't believe my principles, if they didn't have my standards from everything, from music to dress to, to diet to exercise to you name it, if they didn't go to my service, I became exceedingly critical of them, so much so that sometimes I would even make the comment about people who did not live it like I lived it, I wonder if they're even saved. Now, I knew that many times I didn't live that way, that I failed. But I would look at them in their moments of failures and I'd say, I wonder if they're even saved. I never asked that question about me, of course. But I asked that question about other people. Something happened to me during those days. The joy of my salvation left, unless I was keeping all the rules. And my desire to share the gospel with other people also departed. Because I, I became much too mature to share the gospel. The gospel, well, anybody could share the gospel. I was in it for the deeper things of life. And I didn't want to deal with people who were in, 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 in a rather elementary or basic level of their walk with God. You know, just a new Christian. I wanted to talk with people about the deep things of the Christian life. And so I had very little to do with people who were unsaved because after all, they didn't live by my standards. I was suspect of most other Christians because they didn't live by my standards. And I began to surround myself with a little coterie of friends, and they, we were all deep. Now, I know probably nobody here can identify with anything that I've said. Well, I have a good friend, and good friends are good for a lot of things, but this good friend is a pretty confrontational kind of individual. He said, Tom... What is happening to us? I said, what do you mean? He said, don't you remember when we just love to share the gospel? We love to go out and tell people about Jesus. And don't you remember when we just enjoyed the fact that the gospel was simple and that when Christ came into a person's life, Jesus would change that person's life? He said, I almost think that we are just bound up by some new kind of law. Now listen, friend, do you know what this individual and I were experiencing in our life? we were becoming Galatianistic. We would never have said, you are saved by grace, but you are kept by works. But yet, in our mind, people who did not do our works were probably not saved. And we didn't want to take the time to share the gospel because we realized it took a long time of maturity to get to the point where they did our works and we weren't willing to invest that many years in anybody. 
And so we saw sharing the gospel messages. We talked about picking green fruit. We talked about, well, that, they, they, they never were under Holy Ghost conviction. They, and we made fun of people who preached evangelistic messages because, after all, they weren't taking these people on to maturity like we were. We were nothing more than Galatianistic Christians. Now, it's very silent in this congregation this morning. And I take that to believe one of two things. Either you have no idea what I'm talking about or a bullet has just hit your heart. And I believe the second. Amen? It is so easy to make what we think the spiritual life ought to be the standard for everybody. And that is Galatianism. Now, in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul describes these kind of people. And what I'd like to do this morning is to share with you at least three of those descriptions, and then in our next service, I want to share three more with you, all right, as we move through these 14 verses of Galatians chapter 3. And let me say on the outset, if you or anyone would say, now, preacher, are you meaning that we should not go on in maturity as Christians, that we shouldn't attend a seminar? or a conference, like we heard somebody talking about a three-day family enrichment conference, that we shouldn't attend that, or we shouldn't get involved in a discipleship training group? Are you saying we shouldn't do that? Absolutely not. I did not say that. In fact, I encourage you to do that. In fact, I have written the curriculum for discipleship training uh, manuals, and I have participated many times in family life seminars. What I am saying is this, never take principles and make them into a law by which if a person keeps them, they can become saved or they will stay saved because the gospel is very simple. You repent of your sin. You trust in Jesus. He is enough to save you. He is enough to save you. So what does Apostle Paul call these people? All right, there are three terms I want to share with you in the next few moments. First of all, he says... If you have been deceived, we're talking about the descriptions of the deceived. These are Christians. And I want you to see in these two messages that we move from being just foolish to being, and you'll hear this in our service this evening, you move to being a false prophet. In other words, you begin to preach a wrong kind of gospel. What you preach is not even good news for anybody. You begin to preach another kind of legalism, all right? First of all, he says, if you are deceived in this fashion, you are foolish. Notice verse 1, O foolish Galatians. Now, I know Jesus said don't call a man fool, and so you need to understand the word that is used here. The word that Christ used when he said don't call a man fool means don't consider a person worthless or empty or of no value to God. The word that is used here for foolishness means that a person is now not using the knowledge that they have, all right? That is what the word refers to here. He says, you have knowledge, but you're not living up to the knowledge that you possess. You're acting foolishly. Now, as an example of this, he uses another phrase, and that is the phrase bewitched. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, Paul is choosing this word very carefully because a person who has been bewitched, so to speak, is a person who is living contrary to his nature. Um, one of the reasons that I 
strongly encourage you never to become involved, for instance, in something like hypnotism. It may seem like an empty party game to you, or you may have a counselor who says, oh, I believe in hypnosis or self-hypnosis. I want to tell you, I believe that is eminently, spiritually, very, very dangerous. Because in hypnotism, you open your mind and you surrender your will to another, and you are never to do that to anyone but the Lord Jesus himself. And I know many people who have suffered, you know, people say, well, I overcame this or I overcame that, and I think this is wonderful. Let me tell you something. The downside of that is I know of people who have suffered spiritually for many, many, many years because of hypnosis or hypnotic experiences. And I know this runs counter to the grain of somebody who has learned how to do it and loves doing it. And uh, I, I just have to tell you the truth. Nobody is to ever open their mind up to anything or to surrender their will to anyone other than Christ. Now, that's just what the Scripture says. Now, Paul uses the word bewitched. He's saying somebody has put it on you. See, a person, for instance, you've seen them, people who are hypnotized, and somebody will say, well, why don't you act like a cat or a dog? And you'll see this person under hypnosis. They'll start barking or they'll start uh, meowing like a cat, you know, doing something that is totally against their nature. And so what he is saying here is, look, if you believe that you are saved by grace but kept by works, you're not living up to the knowledge that you have. As a matter of fact, you are like a bewitched person. You are not acting according to your true nature as a believer in Christ. You're acting against your nature. Now, what was your nature? He says, before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth and crucified among you. He says, here is what you learned. Jesus died on the cross. He said, when I came to preach to you, I pictured Christ on the cross, his death on the cross as being sufficient to pay for your sins. You repented of your sins. You trusted in Jesus. All of a sudden now, that is not enough for you. It's like you have been bewitched. Somebody's put the evil eye on you. You're not acting according to your nature, not even according to what you have learned. By the way, I have discovered that normally people who begin to move into this sin of Galatianism, saying you're saved by grace, but you are kept by your works, I have discovered that by and large, you can tell when they are moving in that direction because they will stop witnessing to their friends. It will become many, many days, weeks, months, years since they have ever led someone to Christ. Now, why is that? Because you see, in their mind, it is not a matter of, as you heard in the testimony early, earlier, receiving Christ and having a life transformed. It is a matter of praying some kind of prayer, and then you've got to live out these Christian works, and they're just not sure they want to put you on that trip or not. And the reason you don't share the good news is because, let me tell you something, friends, salvation by works is not good news. That's why it is the New Testament that is called the gospel, not the old. Anything wrong with the Old Testament? No, it's like a mirror. It shows how we're dirty, but it doesn't clean us up. The gospel, Jesus dying on the cross, paying for our sins. You see, and a person who moves into this is foolish. They act against their nature. It's almost as if they've been bewitched. And one of the things that you will stop doing, you will stop sharing with other people how they can become Christians. What you will start doing instead of sharing is criticizing people who say they are Christians but not living like you, and you're saying they must not be saved because they don't live according to my standard. 
And really all you've done is just picked and chosen the rules out of the Bible that you think you keep. It's like a, a person who cannot see giving up pornography, you know. I mean, that's easy enough for you. But you've picked your rules and you say they've got to live by your rules regarding something. And if they don't do that, then you say they're not saved and you don't share the gospel. So he says in the first place, you're foolish if you believe that. In the second place, he says, you are forgetful. You are forgetful. Look at verse 2 and then again at verse 4. In those two verses, he asked two questions. This only would I learn of you. Here's the question. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? In other words, question number one, how did you get saved? Was it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Did you hear the message of the gospel and receive Jesus Christ by faith as your Savior? Question number one, how did you come to Christ? Question number two, did your experience teach you ever anything? Look at verse 4. Have you suffered, and that word suffered there means experience, have you experienced so many things in vain? That is, without purpose, if it be yet in vain. And here the Apostle Paul is holding out a hope, maybe it's not been in vain. So two questions he asks. He says, how did you get saved? Didn't that teach you anything? Now, what is he inferring here? The Apostle Paul is saying that if you believe that you are saved by grace, but you are kept by doing certain works, you are forgetful. Besides being foolish, you've, you've forgotten how you got saved. Now, <clears throat> what happens with people like this is that they begin to expect people to immediately become where they are after many years of spiritual pilgrimage. One of the most frustrating things for a child is to be told constantly by a parent to act like an adult. That is so frustrating. Act like an adult. Well, the Bible says foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. Now, it also says the rod of discipline drives it out, which is something that that's a whole other subject. But the point is, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. A child does not, like, does not act like an adult. Now, what these Galatians did was very simple. They had progressed in their mind, and I'll use that word in quotes. They had progressed in their spiritual life to the point that they had learned a few things, and they had been to a few meetings, and they'd heard a few preachers, and heard a few teachers, and they had a few books, and they had listened to a few tapes, if you'll allow me to put it in this fashion, and they had learned a few things, and they were not doing all that they had learned, but they were doing some of the things that they had learned, and now they were expecting anyone who trusted in Jesus to immediately become doing just like they were doing. They had forgotten that it had taken them months, years to get to that point where they were, where they even had this kind of a grasp of anything spiritual. And now they were demanding that brand new Christians act, live, believe, think, just like they did now. Come on, give me a physical break. A brand new believer in Christ is not going to act like someone who has received Christ by faith and has gone on with Jesus unto maturity. It's just not going to happen that way. It is just not going to happen that way. There has got to be room. You know, uh, one time I, I had the privilege of, of being present when a man received Christ as his Savior, and this guy had just such a sordid background. That's the reason I'm telling you about him. He just live like the devil. I mean, you know, just... And um, 
a week or two past, his wife came to see me. She said, Brother Thomas, I don't think my husband's saved. And I said, why? She said, well, now, don't, don't misunderstand me. He's, he's changed a lot. But the other day, we got in traffic, and there was a car in front of him. You know how sometimes you get behind a car and you feel like the guy's practicing for a shrine parade, you know? I mean, you know you're going. He says, this car was in front, and, and this guy, he said he would not move, wouldn't get out of the way, and, and he said, my husband, he just dropped an expletive just like he did before he was saved. She said, I don't think he's saved. I said, well, tell me what else is that? Oh, she said he's reading his Bible, and you know he loves to come to church. He was so ashamed about that. He said he felt terrible about it, but said, you don't think a real saved man would do that? Yeah, I think that could happen. Am I saying that you ought to go out and do it? No. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. No. But let me tell you this. God begins working on you the moment you're saved to conform you to the image of Christ, but it doesn't happen in a moment's time. That's why he leaves you here on this earth to work on you. And that's why everybody is different than you are. You've got to give them room to grow as well. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, you have forgotten all that God has done in your life to make you what you are. You see, I, I, I can't believe how a person could say Jesus is the Lord of their life if they don't tithe. But I can conceive of the fact that a person who's just trusted in Jesus looks at that word T-I-T-H-E and thinks that's the tithe and doesn't know what it is. I've got to give that person room. So I give them about 24 hours. <laughs> Foolish, forgetful, and one final word, fleshly. Fleshly. Look with me, if you will, at verse 3. Are you so foolish? Again. Having begun in the Spirit. He said, you start out in the Spirit, trusting in Jesus as your Savior. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? And I think it's interesting that he uses the word made perfect there because people who believe that you're saved by grace but kept by works often preach a doctrine which they call the doctrine of the second blessing. Sometimes they mix it up with the doctrine of total sanctification or perfection, sinless perfection. In other words, they believe that you could come to a point of time in your life on this earth where you just never sin anymore just by dint of your human effort. And he's saying, having begun in the Spirit, do you think that you're going to be able to live a life pleasing to God by the flesh? By the flesh. He says, what you've done is you've become fleshly. You have all of a sudden exaggerated your human capacities. What you're doing is minimizing the fact that you couldn't even get into heaven except by the grace of God, and you're maximizing the very thing that was going to take you to hell in the first place, and that is the works of your flesh. And you're saying, I can clean my life up. Now, by the way, many times people who have a tendency to do this, and I have to just add this, Many times people who have a tendency to do this are people who by their very nature and gifting have real strong wills. You know, you may say, I'm never going to eat any of this or that or the other, and yet you sneak around and do. But they're the kind of people who if they ever say, I'm not going to do that anymore, they don't. It's just aggravating. You know, they just have a strong will, and they're very proud of their strong will, and they believe that they're pleasing God by their strong will. But I want to tell you something. A strong will will take you straight to hell unless you are saved by the grace of God. That's right. 
Nothing wrong with a strong will. <laughs> I think all of us wish we had stronger wills. But you cannot will yourself into heaven. If you could, Jesus died in vain. That's what he's saying here. It's foolish for Jesus to die. If you could make it on your own, why did he rescue you? He did something for you you could not do for yourself. So not only are you foolish and forgetful, you are fleshly. That is, you have a greater opinion of what you can do than of what Jesus did on the cross when he saved you. Those are just three of the descriptions of the deceived. I'm going to ask you to bow your head. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. You know, the reason that some people could not identify with what I was saying a few moments ago about being forgetful is because maybe you never have a salvation experience to have forgotten. You say, I can't remember anything about trusting in Jesus. You say, I, I don't know that I ever repent of my sins. I've always just believed in God and wanted to go to heaven when I died, and I guess that just made me Christian. Not so, dear friend. And this morning, in a few moments, we're going to stand together. Our choir is going to lead us as we sing a hymn of invitation, All to Jesus. I surrender all to Him. I freely give. I surrender all. As we sing that hymn of invitation, if you need Christ as your Savior, you want to repent of your sins, trusting in Him so that you might have eternal life, I would urge you to make your way forward. Find a counselor and say, look, I want to trust Christ this morning. Your sins will be forgiven because Jesus paid for them on the cross. You'd walk out of here having a brand new life, and I would urge you to come and say that to a counselor. They'll talk with you, pray with you, give you some information to help you as you grow in faith. When you leave this place this morning, you can know Christ is in your heart as your Savior. If you die, you go to heaven. In the meantime, life on this earth is a life of joy, a life of peace and purpose, and I would urge you to come this morning and make that decision. If you've made that decision before, you've never followed the Lord's command to be baptized, this invitation is for you this morning. I would urge you to come and say to one of these counselors, look, Jesus is my Lord. I'm a Christian. I want to confess him as I've seen in this very service. I want to confess him sometime soon through the symbol of baptism. If you're not a member of this church, you may be a college student, you may be single, you may be in family, maybe you've just moved to this community, maybe you've been in this community for many, many years, but you're looking for a place where you can serve, a place where you can be under the watch care, even for the few months perhaps that you're here in the university. I would urge you the very moment we stand to come and say to one of these counselors, look, I want to be a part of this church. We want to be a part of this church. Our family wants to plant itself in this church. I'd urge you to make that decision this morning. Perhaps here this morning, you've come to this worship service, you realize that you have been like a, a, a Christian in Galatia. Maybe you've been caustic and critical and judgmental of others. Maybe you've let your whole idea of your relationship to God rise or fall on some habit that you either fail to keep or that you keep. This morning you want to come to this altar and say, look, I realize I'm saved by the grace of God and I'll go on in the grace of God this morning with the simple message of the gospel, Jesus died to save sinners. I'm one and I received him and others can receive him as well. Your invitation to come to this altar and say, Lord, I want to repent of that. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. When I say amen, we're going to stand. The counselors are coming even now. I'm going to ask them to come. Stand right here at the front. You come and meet them. If you've made a decision in an earlier service, whether it's to join this church or to be baptized, and you've done that and we've not introduced you, I'm going to ask you to come as well. There'll be a great host of people coming. You just be seated over here to my left, to your right, so that we can introduce you at the close of the service. Father in heaven, I pray your Holy Spirit moving in power now.
at this time of invitation, which is so very, very important, would rivet our focus upon you, that each one of us would examine our relationship with you, bring people to this altar to say yes to you. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Let's begin singing. This is your invitation to come to Christ, to say yes to him, to become a part of this church. And as we sing, won't you come?